Huge joy to be with you this morning. Uh, this is the time in our service when we come to the words of Scripture. You'll see lots of words of Scripture appearing up on this screen. My uh, hope, if I do a good job, if any preacher does a good job, what they actually do is bring you face-to-face with the words of Scripture uh, so that you might observe them and understand their meaning and be able to apply them to your life, to our life together. So we're going to engage Scripture today. We're preaching through the biblical book of Acts. That might be brand new to some of you. We had a bunch of people over our house on Friday night. They were asking about the church. What kind of church was it? I tried to explain what kind of church this is and talk about who we were connected to. And I asked if they had ever heard of the book of Acts. And I got a completely blank stare. So we get that. Some of you may have been brought up not around the books of the Bible. No problem. The one that we're working through today is called the book of Acts. It's about the birthing of the church from Jesus's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. And of course, running through the story of how that gospel spread in its first generation. So there's an excitement here in this text that you'll feel in a second. But let me start here. One of the realities that comes with having the grace of God overrun your soul and just rearrange everything in your life is that you belonging to Jesus now cannot only be a personal, spiritual reality, but it also must become a public, missional reality. Here's what I mean. There's tons of institutions, organizations, recreations, that you could be a part of, that you can belong to, where nobody is asking you to bear witness about that to anybody else. It's, it's not necessarily a part of the deal. So the Melrose Library Book Club. Raise your hand if you're in that. <laughs> Do we have any readers? I'm just kidding. Whether you raise your hand or not is not like a a part of being a part of the book club. You can keep your hand down. You can read a curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. That's what's being read through right now. You can sneak into the Melrose book club meeting. You can sneak away. Nobody really needs to know about that except the people in your community. I play over 30 basketball at the Y Monday and Wednesday nights. You can slide in the side door. You can play some ball, pathetic old man basketball. Then you can slide back into your car and leave. There's no pressure to invite anyone. There's no uniforms with your name on it. No one needs to know. You can play fantasy football without even using your real name to register. Did you know that? No one needs to know that you drafted Jay Cutler and Geno Smith. Anonymous, completely. But belonging to Jesus, it's not like that. Once Jesus claims you for his own, you can't hide that. Embedded in your identity deeply as a child of God is that you are now called to make Jesus known in this world to others through your life. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a bucket. Let your light shine before men. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. 
And so we say this all the time, mission, being a clear and compelling witness to Jesus Christ in the world is not negotiable for Christians or for Christian churches. Now for the Bostonians in this room, that can be very frightening to hear because we live in a culture where to be Christian, to identify with Christ is to be not just a part of the minority, but a disdained minority. That's our lot. So the video that we showed you, we were down in Dallas, Texas last week for a couple of days getting some training to serve you better. It was culture shock for me. Christians are a majority in Dallas, or at least the part where we happen to be. So you know how we have Dunkin' Donuts? They got mega church buildings. Every other left turn, whoa, wow, what, fleet center size churches, many of them. The church that we were in had a three-story Chuck E. Cheese tube slide inside the lobby of the church. I came back with visions of just sticking one of those on the back of this building. Barnes & Noble had a Bible translation section in Dallas. It was wild, and it was good. I praise God for that, right? May the gospel take such deep in root in Boston in Melrose that Starbucks is selling Lecrae and not Brian Adams, right? May people just have Jesus on their hearts and on their lips and want to know what Bible translation to read. That would be great. We're going for that. But right now, Boston is not Dallas. Ours is a decidedly secular culture. You live in it with me. The powers in our culture, academia, government, media, all of the rest, they look down, look down on Christians and Christian churches. In the face of that reality, it would be very tempting for us to cower, to just think, man, I am so weak, and I am so fragile, and I am so not influential, I am so overmatched, I'm so out of my element in a secular culture, there's no way that Jesus could accomplish anything through my life or through the life of my church. Let's just retreat and withdraw and just kind of hide. Let's go personal and spiritual, but let's not go public and missional. If that temptation weighs on you, I cannot wait to preach this text to you this morning because this text is going to cast some vision for you of why cowering like that is just not an option for Jesus' people. But we get to, by the power of the Spirit, be bold and clear and compelling witnesses in our lives for Christ. We're going to watch this happen with some disdained, overmatched nobodies and see how this can happen with us. All right, so let me pray and we'll do this. Father, be gracious to us. You know our temptation to think that, that there's no way that we can stand and be confident and bold in Christ in our day. But every single day we're going to be faced with this. And so I pray that in your grace you would straighten the backs of your sons and your daughters this morning, not in our own strength, but because of your grace and your promise and your spirit. Hear my prayer for that and answer, I pray. Amen. 
Okay, Matt Moran uh, McCann has read the text for you. Let me just make sure you have the context. Really high drama. I need you to feel this if you're going to feel the punch of this text. By the name of Jesus, Peter and John and two of the apostles had just healed a man who had never, ever, never walked in his life. And in about 10 seconds, that was all that anyone in Jerusalem was talking about. Primarily because everybody knew this guy. He sat on the same cardboard box in the same exact spot outside the temple, holding the same tin can, asking for alms of the same people day after day after day. Everyone knew who he was. And now all of a sudden, this cripple, whose legs never worked, was running and leaping and bounding all over the temple and the temple gates. So the Macarena, he's doing it. The running man, he's doing it. You know the sprinkler? Guys got to get to some weddings. What in the world? So he's doing, he is just the exclamation points. Leaping, bounding, praising is how Luke describes it. It's a miracle. Word of this miracle travels from the sidewalk all the way up to the big shots up in the temple. And they lay hands on these apostles and they put them in prison in custody for the night, figure out what to do with them and their message about Jesus. It's a very intense moment in the life of the church. Imagine your pastors being in jail for a night. What, what's going to happen the next day? This is high drama. And Luke says that this is what happens. This is the text that we're working through. Sorry. On the next day, their rulers and their elders and their scribes gathered in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Acts chapter 4. I need you to feel this. Don't worry about those little question marks on there. It's in there if you need to find it. This is the biggest, baddest crew in Israel in Jesus' day. These are the cultural elites. These are the people who owned the newspapers. These are the PhDs. These are the theological Jedis. These are the big power families. These are the ones with political influence. These are the ones with the bank accounts. These are the ones who used the really big words correctly. They were trained in rhetoric. Armani robes. Duck Dynasty beards, and that wouldn't have been sign of a, a weirdo from Arkansas. That would be authority and power and influence in that day. There was no more intimidating collection of people in this country. So if this was politics, this is the Kennedys and the Clintons and the Kerrys. If this is academics, this is professors who are published with tenure from Harvard and MIT and Dartmouth. If this was 90s hip-hop, this is Biggie and Tupac and Nas. All three of them are on this council. This is successful, accomplished, powerful elite. Okay, then Luke says this. And when they had set Jesus' apostles right in the middle of all of them, in the midst, they inquired, And you have to hear the intimidating, somber 
tone to these words. By what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, so I need you to feel this too. Before this collection of powerful elites, in comes Peter and John. Raggedy clothes, grimy fishermen hands. You know, the hooks have cut them a thousand and one times. They have just spent the night sleeping in a prison cell, smelling ripe. They've never been to college. They're not rabbinically trained. Thick Galilean accents sound like some hillbillies from Appalachia. That's what they would have sounded like from Galilee. These are not up-and-comers. This is not varsity and JV. This is not the starting quarterback and the backup quarterback. This is the starting quarterback, and you know that fat guy who wears the jersey that's three sizes too small and his belly's hanging out and he's got the two cans of beer with the straw on his head? That's who this is. That's bringing him into the game and putting shoulder pads on him. Somebody's an absolute nobody's. Okay, how are you expecting this to go for Peter and for John? Not good. Uh, let me give you a story before I show you the words. Paul Brogdon is in my gospel community. He works for Wellington Management. He does graphic design. He's great at it, but he's a new kid on the block in the company. One day, the whole council of Wellington Management, whatever that means, all got together and Paul was tapped to give the presentation for his little group. So he's sitting in one of those intimidating rooms, and not only is the room filled, but like partners from across the globe are in on Skype, FaceTime. You know that little microphone that sits in front of you and you push the button when you're ready to talk? He's all ready to go. He's all prepped to go. He says two seconds before he pushes the button, his throat goes like drier than an Amish tailgate party. And his lungs just like, all of a sudden, he sounds like he walked up 40 flights of stairs. And he, instead of going, hello, I'm Paul Brogna, and I work for graphic design, he goes, hello, I'm Paul Brogna, I work in the graphic design people. He said he just like almost fell out of his chair, embarrassed. And then he breathed and he saved himself and he did a great job. That's about the best that you could ever imagine would happen right here. That they might stumble through their presentation before these people. If you asked me, I would more expect that they would just tuck their tail and run away. Just kind of like cower in the corner. Just say, we are so out of our element right now. We really have nothing to say. We're so sorry that we bothered you. I'm sorry that this happened. It's just a big mistake. Can we please just be quiet now and go home? That is what you are expecting. But instead, what happens? They nail it. They stand up straight, filled with the Spirit, and they speak bold, clear, articulate, gospel in this setting. It's amazing. 
There is no cowering at all. There is no hesitation. There is no evasive language. There is no uh, no um. It's just clear, compelling, fiery, articulate, confident witness. And when they stop speaking, nobody in the whole room moves. Nobody moves. And here's what Luke writes. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. In Boston, we would call this a wicked shaka. That's what this is right here. Luke points out two important things. Let's get a handle on them. The first is their boldness, their boldness. Somehow they speak with no fear and really clear. One of the books that I read to get ready to preach through the book of Acts with you is called Tongues of Flame, Learning to Preach from the Apostles by a guy named Robert Wagner. I think he just got so frustrated with the tepid, embarrassed, pansy, unclear preaching that was coming from American pulpits that he said, I'm going back to the book of Acts, and I want to see what it was that made this preaching so powerful and magnetic, and I want to write a book that helps us to learn what this looked like there. He gives a whole chapter of that book to one word, boldness. He says that's the word that characterizes apostolic preaching from the beginning to the end. In Acts 2, Peter speaks confidently, boldly to the people. In Acts 28, the apostle Paul speaks boldly and without hindrance. And as you read this book with us, you're going to see this word come up over and over again attached to their witness. And he says that for some reason, these guys who were out of place and unqualified, stood up straight like they had the freedom to speak, stood up straight like they had the freedom to bear witness in the face of fear with very clear and direct words. This is the posture that you have when you are in your element. Okay, you know what I mean when I say you're in your element? Have you seen any of the six million five or six-year-olds who are in the life of this church? What happens the first day that you meet them, I remember this especially with Noah and uh, Josie, the first day that you meet them, it's a big scary building, somebody painted the whole back blood red, the pastor's real tall with a red face, they're like scared to death. So what do they do when you tower over them and say, hi, tell me about school? How does that go? They cling to mom's leg and they like bury their heads behind her. And if they do mumble out like some whisper words, they're unclear, they're embarrassed, they're nervous, they're intimidated. That's always the response of a little kid who's in here for the first time, meeting you for the first time. Even if you get down on your knee like I try to do and make eye contact, they're, they're not bold, they're not clear, they're, they're nervous. But what happens when you go visit that family in their house? What happens when you get into that kid's little play area, basement with his toys, and you get down on your knees and you look them in the eye? What happens in that conversation when they're actually in their element? Everything changes, right? Now they stand tall. Now they want to show you all of their stuff. Some of these kids will just not let you out of their sight talking with boldness and with confidence. 
loud, clear answers to your questions. They're in their element. The other day I was waiting to play ball at the Y, and so I'm sitting on the bleachers with this other dude who had been a point guard on a college basketball team. So he's in his element at the Y, right? You can smell the body odor, especially from the teenagers. You can hear the ball bouncing on the floor. He's about to get in the game. This is his spot. And so I'm trying to chit-chat. Grace is teaching me this art, and I'm trying to get to know this guy. So I say, hey, question. If you had NBA League Pass and you could watch just five teams, who would you sign up for? This guy pulled a Matt Cruz, 20-second question, 20-minute answer. And with boldness and with clarity, the dude walked me through all five teams and who they would be and why they would be that. Why was he so confident in giving that answer? He was in his element. He knew his stuff. He was comfortable. There's a courage that comes there. This is what the council noted about these apostles. No fear, no hesitation, just like they owned the place. Why was this such a shock? Because they didn't own the place. Because they were totally out of their element, but somehow they were acting as if they were right in the middle of it. Here's how Luke says this. He says they were uneducated and common. That's what they noticed. The boldness, but they don't belong here. Uneducated and common. These guys are out of their element. Uneducated doesn't mean dumb or incapable. It just means unlearned. The literal word is unlettered. It just means haven't had access to the training that others have had access to. Uh, Common is not an attack on someone's morality. It just means just a nobody, just an average person, not influential. You don't expect them to do anything really super well. Do not belong here. In other words, these fishermen from Galilee should have been outmatched, intimidated and scared and out of place, but instead they acted with confidence and freedom. And so the big question becomes, how could this be? How in the world could this happen? There's only one explanation, and it's beautiful the way that Luke records it for us. This is it. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Boldness from these guys who are totally unqualified and out of their element? Shocked. Only one explanation, that's right. These were the guys who were with Jesus. Okay, let's work that phrase together. I think it means at least two different things, with Jesus. One is simply that they had been with the person of Jesus. I listened to this preached a couple of times, rushing to the mystical component of this. Have you ever been with someone who's just so energetic and so charismatic and so visionary that after you get lunch with them, you just feel like you could like do anything in the world right now? Just go down to the gym and you're benching like 360, I can do this because I was with Jeremiah Morris or I was with whoever that might be. That's true, but I don't think that the application here or what they were thinking was they 
had such long prayer times with Jesus that they came out of their prayer closet ready to just do amazing things. I think this actually means that they had watched Jesus do his thing for years. And it, it looked and it sounded and it felt exactly like what Peter and John had just pulled off. It was obvious to the council that whoever Jesus was had rubbed off on these disciples. So who was Jesus of Nazareth? He was the untrained, uneducated, outsider, carpenter of all things, from Galilee of all places. And yet he preached like a man on fire with never-before-seen authority. If you read the Gospels, you will see that people are always going, wait a minute, isn't this guy a carpenter? Isn't he from Galilee? How could he speak with such clarity and power? He doesn't belong in the streets teaching. He doesn't belong calling disciples to himself, acting like a rabbi. That's not who he is. How can he debate with the theological elites? He is out of his league, and yet he's killing it. He's killing it. That's exactly what they saw in these apostles. How could they have just done this? They have been with Jesus. Okay, in other words, if you find me a person who has been shaped by Jesus, by his way, by his words, by his wisdom, by his dependence on the Father, by his love for the lost, by his confidence in Scripture, you find me that person and their life is going to bear bold and clear and compelling witness to him. It's inescapable that the two would go hand in hand. And it wasn't just that they were with Jesus and so they observed and learned and imitated. Because they were with Jesus, they received the promises of Jesus. Jesus had already prepared them for this day. Here's the text that we read to start the service. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and this is what he said. They will lay their hands on you. He had already told them that this day was coming. They will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Okay, when you read that promise of Jesus, this is coming, it should read to you like a nightmare, like a disaster, horror show. This would be like you telling me, Cruz, you're going to be on the next episode of Chopped. You're going to be standing before three elite Manhattan chefs, and you're going to have to cook something for them and then present it to them, and they're going to judge you based on that. That would not be good news. That would be a nightmare for me. Horrible situation to do that. But instead, what does Jesus call this? The next verse says this. It's awesome. I love it. It says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. You got to feel this. When you are totally out of your element 
and totally out of your league and unqualified and your life is on the line and the whole world is against you, that's not a nightmare. That's an opportunity. That's your chance to bear bold witness for Jesus. That is a spectacular way to look at your life, especially as a Bostonian. Not, woe is me, I'm a Christian living in a secular, gospel-hating time, but here we go. This is my shot to make Jesus known with boldness and clarity through this one life that he has given me. He put me here, way in over my head, overmatched, but he promises to be with me so I can stand up straight and I can do this. And then Jesus gives them this surprising, beautiful promise in the text. He tells them, here's how to be clear and bold in the face of fear. And here's what he says. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth or give you words and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is so counter-American and counter-intuitive. If I told you that you were going to stand before Barack Obama and have to give witness to Christ, what would you do right away? Man, you would work that script. You would memorize those words. You would work on inflection and tone. You would get your nonverbal gestures down pat. You would get yourself scripted and ready. Have you ever seen Shark Tank? You've seen that, right? Do you know what that is? It's another good illustration for today. Five billionaires sitting in front of you. And these two-bit entrepreneurs have to walk through these doors and give the presentation of their life, and then the whole world is going to watch it. What does every single one of them do beforehand? What do they do? They memorize their pitch and their script. Of course you do. Then when they walk through those doors, they lean into their preparation, their script, their smarts, their wit, their own strength. But what does Jesus say? Uh Uh-uh. That's not how you do this. That's not where I want your courage to come from. That's not where I want your boldness to be rooted. By my Spirit, I will give you words and wisdom. Okay, that is not anti-intellectualism, Like, don't work hard and study. Wing it for Jesus. This is Jesus in love reminding you your boldness is not about you performing well. Your boldness is about me being with you. The council did not say, wow, Peter and John can talk good. What brilliant overachievers. They must have worked at this. They did such a nice job with that speech. They said what? These guys have been with Jesus. These guys have been with Jesus. In other words, their boldness doesn't just come from outside that council. 
It comes from outside even themselves. Not their capacity or intellect or effort. It comes from the person and the work and the beauty and the power and the love and the truth and the promise of Jesus. That's how somebody outside of their element and unqualified can stand up straight without fear of consequences and just live a life that is a bold witness to Jesus. Okay, let's bring this home. We and you have the same exact opportunity that Peter and John did on this day. Let me say that again because you've got to get this as you're reading through the book of Acts. You and we have the same opportunity, Jesus' word, that Peter and John did on this day. God intends for your life and the life of this church to be a bold witness to his gospel grace. I know that being with Jesus is not popular on your street, at your job, in your school, in our day. I know that we are like less than nothing as a tiny little church without even one dedicated parking spot. I could not explain that to people in Dallas. They were like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. But if Acts teaches us anything, it is that the Lord digs using overmatched, unqualified people who will just lean into his person and his promises and stand up straight for his glory. In other words, if Jesus is with you, you are never out of your element. How cool is that? If Jesus is with you, you're never out of your element. In Dallas, bold, clear witness to Jesus. In Boston, bold, clear witness to Jesus. Drop me in Tanzania, I will have to learn a little bit of Swahili, but I have Jesus. It's not about me. I can stand up straight and give bold, clear, compelling witness to Jesus. This is what the people of our city need desperately from us, that we would not be timid, cowards, nor that we would be accomplished performers who have all the right words down, that we would just be nobodies who have been close to the person and the promises of Jesus. And so we give clear and compelling witness to them. Last thing, I'm reading John Bunyan's biography. He's the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And the king of England was asking a brilliant theologian named John Owen in their day, the king was asking the PhD, why in the world do you go listen to John Bunyan preach? And he called him an uneducated tinker. I don't have any idea what a tinker is, but it just sounds like the meanest slander. Why would you, brilliant professor, go listen to an uneducated tinker speak? And John Owen said, I would trade in all of my learning for the ability to touch men's hearts the way that John Bunyan does. That should be our vision right here. Not that we would be the ultimately perfect performing, singing, preaching church, but because we are so close to Jesus and his spirit is so heavy on us that people that come in contact with us, uneducated tinkers or whatever the right word is, are touched by the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. He promises to do that. So let's walk out of here, even though we're not in our element 
as if we were in our elements because we have Christ. All right, let's pray and think on that together. Father, these are hard words because we actually have to believe them to be true. We want to cower. We want to hide. We know how sinful we are, and we imagine that there's no bold or clear or compelling witness that we could be. But your word here, and over and over and over and over again, shows us it's not by might or by power, but by the Spirit, that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but the people of God trust in the Spirit of God. And so I pray that you would stand my brothers and sisters up tall and straight, that their lives would be so humble, but also so bold, shockingly so, and that the only explanation would be that they have received the grace of God in Christ. Would you help us to be courageous because of your promise? Would you pour your spirit out on us that many might have their hearts touched by our lives and our witness? Would you do this for your glory and for our joy? I pray that you would hear my prayer and answer. Amen.